A note about this podcast episode before we begin. There are some mature themes, including sexual assault and gendered violence. If you find such topics triggering or distressing, or if you're with younger listeners, it might not be for you. APRA acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past and present. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. In this episode, we hear two stories of people in LGBTIQA plus communities and their experiences with healthcare. Let's start with Jasper Peach, a writer, editor, speaker, and health promoter. Welcome, Jasper. Can you introduce yourself, please? My name's Jasper Peach, and I'm a 41-year-old um, non-binary person. My pronouns are they, them. I'm a parent. I've got two children who are aged two and four. Perfect. Could you talk to us um, about some recent experiences that you've had with healthcare and how they were to navigate as someone who's a member of the LGBTIQA plus community? My recent experiences in medical settings have been quite positive. Um, We have been in a pandemic, which has made, made things pretty tricky for everyone. In the last 12 months, uh, I started to self-identify as non-binary and I adjusted my name and my gender expression. Um, I've chosen not to do that in any official Medicare kind of way, um, and that's for many reasons, but um, I think a lot of the reasons are to do with medical trauma. I just don't want anything on my records that could lead to discrimination of any kind. I'm okay with knowing who I am, even if it's different on the form. But my GP, who I found after much trial and error here in the regional town that I live in, is she's a cisgendered woman. She's probably a little bit younger than I am. And I did I chose someone younger than I am on purpose because I want this to be a long-term relationship. I don't want them to retire <laughs> before I'm ready to let them go. Um She has rudely had two children and had maternity leave for those times, which has been very difficult for me. Um, But when I let her know recently, oh, I'm going by Jasper now, it's been no trouble at all. She has not once misnamed or misgendered me since. She's very understanding. Which is what you should be able to expect, right? Jasper, you mentioned medical trauma. Do you feel comfortable sharing any experiences of this? Yeah, sure. Um, When we we moved up to central Victoria in uh, 2014 and at the time we were trying to make a baby, we started IVF um, and that was was a pretty interesting situation um, to do as a queer couple. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. I don't know if the same thing applies to heterosexual couples, but um, we needed to do police checks. Uh, We needed to attend counselling so that they could approve whether we were fit to be parents. Um, We needed to both do blood tests. When I asked them why they needed my blood tests, just out of curiosity because my genetic material wasn't going into the making of this baby they couldn't answer they didn't know it just felt very very strange 
very, very strange. Um, and we knew going into it that it would be different from putting on Barry White and making sweet love and then there's a baby. We know there's other people involved, but we didn't know it would be quite so um, cold. And so well, we might not let you do this. You have to keep behaving and doing this. And I think, gosh, I think it was the week before we were scheduled to start treatment for my partner. Um, they called and said, oh, we've looked at your file. Um, you'll need to just have diet shakes until you get to a more appropriate weight. And this was like the week before and we'd been planning and saving. It was awful. Like there's nothing There's nothing unhealthy about my partner. I think it's really important to be aware of the health at every size movement and not make assumptions. Because when you've got people coming for medical care, um, if there's a fertility situation, that's traumatic. If there's a queer situation, that can be traumatic because we're not living in a world that's very safe for us. So even walking into those spaces can be incredibly intimidating. Once we we had this baby growing um, in my partner's womb, it was amazing. She fell pregnant first go with both of our children. She is a fertility goddess. Very lucky in that respect. We attended birthing classes at the hospital where the baby would be born and um, went along. I'm not really someone to read books. I'm, I'm more of a let's have a conversation so I can understand what's happening um, or listen to podcasts or things like that. So we rocked up to birthing classes and everyone gets a show bag and um, with lots of pamphlets and samples and various things. The midwife who was running the classes, she started to talk about um, how birth should be. And ultimately we want birth to mirror the situation where conception occurred. So for everyone it's, it's beautiful and quiet and intimate and there's just the two of you there. There's no one else in the room. First of all, I was not there when our baby was made into um, an embryo. Some scientists did that. Um, I'm very grateful to them, but I don't know who, who they are. Um, and secondly, what about people who have a one-night stand with someone they'll never see again? That's okay too. Like it doesn't, it was so prescriptive. And I think at the time I was shocked, but I I just went, hang, hold up, hold up here. And I, and I said, I wasn't there. I, I raised my hand and I said, I wasn't there when our child was conceived because we went through IVF. We used um, reproductive assistive, assisted technology. And I think that's a really common story, regardless of your, your gender or your sexuality. Um, and she just, the midwife just went, oh, oh, okay then, and then just moved on. But I just, I thought, Read the room, dude. Like, <laughs> you'll, you, it's pretty clear to see that in our, in our family at the time, it was the two of us. There were no cisgendered men in that couple. What do you think is going on, you know? Um, and maybe apply the way you teach the class and use the right language. And I'll just quickly pipe in on language um, for our listeners who might not know that cis is short for cisgender, which describes a person whose gender identity and sex assigned at birth are the same. And that was one of many, many, many things that happened in the space of three hours. 
Um, by the time we left, I was really surprised at how much it got to me. I was, I was a mess. I got in the car and I was in tears and that doesn't generally happen to me. I'm, I, when, was, when was that? 2017. And still now I've, I've felt very secure in who I am. I have a lot of support. I've got a beautiful family, both my immediate family and both of our extended families. Um, I have no trouble in my community. I have no trouble with work. Always just felt really fine about who I am. But I left that birthing class feeling like I was out of place. I didn't belong and I didn't know if I was doing the right thing by becoming a parent because that space was not for me. The language wasn't for me, but it just, I felt really like I was a problem. And, and you're pregnant for the first time. Like you, you've never been in this situation before, you and your wife, and so you don't, yeah, you're having these really difficult confronting experiences when you don't know what to expect. Could you think of any other experiences that you feel comfortable sharing where you've experienced or seen homophobia or transphobia in healthcare settings? When we moved to Central Vic, we, my wife and I, we were initially seeing um, another GP. And she was an older cisgendered woman. And we thought, oh, great. She's, she knows what she's talking about. This is good. She's pretty straight down the line. Um, but I didn't known for a long time that every time I left an appointment with her afterwards I sort of would shake my hand and go hang on what just happened because I'd walk in with with like my I guess my shopping list of I need to address this or get a referral for that or whatever and every time um there would be a very gruff kind of oh don't worry about that do this and the doing this would often be not doing anything when my partner was pregnant with our eldest child, um, I've done a lot of research into um, co-feeding because um, at, at the time um, I was a cis woman and um, and I thought, oh great, we've got two we've got two um, humans who can feed this baby, and wouldn't it be great if if my partner can get a bit more sleep, and um, wouldn't it be great if even though I didn't birth or carry this baby, I could connect and um and nurture them through feeding them and and we knew another couple who were managing it and was going really well and was great greatly successful for them um so i downloaded all the protocols and and stuff and i had my little packet of papers and went along and said i'm really interested in in co-feeding when this baby's born and she just completely she looked at me like I was ridiculous, but I think what happened was she hadn't heard of it and her ego got in the way. Um, she didn't want to appear to be not knowledgeable about something, so the onus was then put on me that what I was bringing to her was irrelevant. And she said, oh, don't worry about all that. You'll birth and feed the next baby. The issue with that is it's very, there's a lot of assumptions there. Um, I didn't end up birthing our next baby. My partner had both of our babies and she had both of those babies. She was healthy. There were no problems. That's the way our family came about and there's, there's, no, there's no issue there. But for the, the GP that I went to, to 
to brush me off like that and it's it's a very excluding kind of way to treat someone and and what about the opposite do you have any examples of really inclusive care that you've received oh yes so with our second baby um I had got to know one of the obstetricians at the same hospital we just become friends um through an online parenting group actually and um that obstetrician is a non-binary person and we actually we did a a switcheroo I um at the time I was a marriage celebrant so I married them to their partner and they um birthed our baby (laughs) for us so not birthed it birthed her for us but um assisted with the pregnancy and and the delivery so um very much like the IVF situation once we got that ongoing one-on-one care with someone who was actually from the G or BTIQA plus community um that's when things were not scary anymore and that's when we didn't have those those you didn't have to have those huddles before you go and go okay so when this happens, what do we say? And coming up with um, ways to sort of hit the ball back to, to the practitioner and, and say, no, no, we are not a problem here. There's nothing bad about us. We're just not something that you're used to. But if you're seeing someone from within your own minority group, that just becomes not even part of it. It's, it's such a relief. It's such a relief to not have to think about that mental load of translating and reframing and convincing and educating those those things are so that's so exhausting when you're in a vulnerable medical setting from what i'm hearing from you like a little bit of um humility as well from practitioners really helps yeah my gp does that all the time if she doesn't know she just says oh i haven't heard of that but thanks i'll look into it and then she does she does yeah it's amazing is there anything else um, that you can think of that would really help um, health practitioners to be more inclusive? Things that you would like, what should we all expect from healthcare practitioners? Um, seeing things on the wall like a rainbow tick or a poster or some sort of representation is really helpful. Um, someone having a an ally badge on their lanyard is really helpful. Everyone in our community talks to each other. We found our IVF doctor because another queer couple said, oh, hey, this person's really great and they won't forget who you are. They'll remember you. They'll know your name. You can talk to them like a person and that is who we will end up trying to see. Um, If we're seeing a random, it is very scary for us. We don't know if they're homophobic. We don't know if they think less of us. We don't know if they will do less of a job because they don't understand why we deserve care um I know that sounds awful but that's what that's what happens when when your patient has to become an educator and an advocate and everything else it really changes the power dynamic in a way that it is very difficult for us to trust you and that might mean giving you all the information Um, that you need to do your job. I would say that being up to date with language um, is just as important as being up to date with what your leave entitlements are. 
and where you park your car when you get to work. It matters the same. If you can stay up to date with that stuff, stay up to date with what we need you to stay up to date with, with our pronouns, with the right terminology so that we're not going to feel that that wincing kind of slap feeling and go, oh, that's not who I am and someone's just told me that, that that's how they see me and now I don't feel safe. Although I've had a lot of um, quite terrible experiences in medical settings to the point where there's actual lasting trauma there, I, I really, I know that most people have the best of intentions um, and no one goes to work wanting to hurt someone. Staying up to date with, with education is really important and there's so many individuals and organisations that can come to your workplace and help you get up to speed if you don't have the time to do your reading or Googling or whatever it is. Sometimes if you're like me, that one-to-one conversation is a lot more helpful with absorbing things like this. It's really important that the job is not on the patient to educate. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not walking into spaces assuming things are going to go badly, but I am walking into spaces worried that they will. Thank you, Jasper, for sharing your experiences so genuinely and generously. Thank you so much. Thanks for, thanks for the space to talk about it too. And now we cross to Toby Halligan, a comedian, writer, broadcaster who was on the phone with us from Canberra. Hi, Toby. Can you introduce yourself, please? My name is Toby Halligan. I identify as a gay man and have been for uh, most of my life heavily involved with the LGBTIQ plus community. Um, I've worked at uh, Joy uh, 94.9 down in Melbourne. Uh, I've had the joy of getting to engage a great deal with the nationwide LGBTIQ plus um, community. Toby, this conversation is about healthcare experiences of people in LGBTIQA plus communities. You've got a particular story to share. Can you tell us what happened? Particular point where we were actually driving through uh, this quite extraordinary national park in northwestern Tasmania, and I was on the phone to Triple um, Zero in Melbourne trying to get an ambulance to attend at uh, the property of a friend of mine who was suicidal. In the end, he wound up being okay. Uh, I was not okay. And I um, wound up uh, through, um, I believe it was my, my GP, um, uh, being prescribed. Uh, I, I was taking a, a small dose of a particular type of antidepressant. What then happened over the next two to three months was I was able, I, I basically was not able to sleep. It was almost as if my brain was gradually speeding up. Um, uh, I've since been told that what I've described sounds like it might be something called serotonin syndrome or that it might as well be similar to perhaps, uh, uh, say, the kind of hypermanic episode that people with bipolar 2 might experience. And I began self-medicating with with alcohol in order to try to slow my brain down, which did not work. I did not know what was going on. And that was the point my mum came down and I voluntarily was admitted to uh, a mental health facility. I was entering the system, voluntarily stopped drinking any alcohol for like four days beforehand because friends had said, we don't think this is helping, this is a problem. 
And what was it like? Were you treated well by the people who worked there? I think it's fair to say that perhaps their initial perceptions or the overwhelming sense I got was they kind of looked at me, 37-year-old gay dude, and said, okay, party boy, right? You, okay, you, you, that drink, you've been drinking too much. Maybe there's been other drugs involved. And in my case, as someone who as a kid was diagnosed with ADHD and as later on in my early 20s with adult ADHD, um, I had like been you know, prescribed at different points um, ADHD drugs like Vyvanse and Dexamphetamine and things like that. And so for that reason, I'd always been incredibly wary of any kind of illicit stimulant medications. But like effectively, I think they assumed they were just detoxing me for alcohol, which was unfortunate. And I literally reached the point where I began expressing quite specific suicidal ideation to a nurse because I simply had had enough, like I couldn't bear it anymore. The next day, I finally had a meeting with both the psychiatrists who were treating me. And in that meeting, one of them said, oh, wait, is he still taking the antidepressant? And the other said, oh, they had both intended to take it off my file and I had effectively been left actually on the one thing that was causing me to be so unwell. They reduced the dose of it. Um, It was amazing how quickly I changed. But I think it's fair to say that as a gay man, there was a sense of being invisible. There were, for example, no pastoral care services that were actually appropriate for a gay person. Like effectively, I met with a nice lady who acknowledged that she was actually from a church and we had like a polite conversation, but there actually were no counsellors that were specifically focused on LGBTIQ plus issues. Um, I sat through sessions with other LGBTIQ plus people where they were clearly being run by people who just did not understand the community or some of the complexities that people dealt with. And what did that mean for you? Or I guess, what would you say to people in a situation like that? You've kind of got to be your own advocate. And I know that feels like to people who might be struggling with mental health conditions or especially people who have already been traumatised perhaps by homophobia or transphobia or, you know, like say the trauma associated with sexual assault as well, which is something that that I've had to deal with too, Um, that it does actually get better and that the only way it gets better is if you keep going. And sometimes keeping going doesn't necessarily mean continuing to engage, say, with uh, a doctor who you feel like isn't listening to you, is ignoring you, you know, it means going and finding another different doctor. The way it gets better is you've got to keep on going and it will be unbearably hard at times, but there are people who care and there are people who will listen and sometimes those people aren't necessarily in the places you expect. Oh, so what's an example of an unexpected place you found refuge or comfort or understanding? Um, art therapy, like I found, you know, to be enormously beneficial both as a process, as something to do, and as something to give me a way of actually connecting with people who clearly their brains worked very, very differently to mine. And it actually meant that we kind of had this common ground. And just to be clear, I'm not very good. You know, it was not like, this does not feel like the emergence of like a Van Gogh type thing. 
this was pretty pretty basic stuff. Like I'm sure a lot of people would have five-year-olds easily putting out much better stuff than whatever I was making, but it gave me stuff to that I could talk to, for example, a guy who had autism and his approach to conversation and his way of engaging in subjects was totally different. And because at that stage I was still exhausted and I actually, you know, was kind of vulnerable and I didn't have much to give, you know, if he walked up to me and asked me about my life, I probably just would have ignored him. But instead, we could talk about the blue that I was adding in quite an ineffectual way to a painting. You know, instead, the people who had depression, and we still do this, we're still sharing stuff that we've made and stuff that we're making. And the point of the stuff that we're making isn't the end output, it's kind of the process. So I guess that would be one example. And some others might be, it might be an LGBTI walking group a gay tennis group, like I worked at Joy Radio for um, a year, a couple of years ago. And I actually found working there like enormously rewarding in terms of like connecting up with people who like obviously plenty of people there didn't have, you know, any mental health challenges at all, but connecting up with people where there was this baseline of empathy and like ways of connecting. But also it helped having a network that could link up, link us up with doctors who are better at approaching these kinds of issues. The most meaningful moment I had in the clinic was when uh, a nurse, a, a lovely guy, uh, uh, like actually, I just began grieving about a friend of mine who died and he just sat with me while I cried for an hour. And he just sat with me and was, and it's hard to explain how important that was. And the core of that was not about my identity and things like that. We were just... He was just being there as a person to listen to me and to kind of show me that someone was there to take care of me. I'd not been that vulnerable with anyone before. It was liberating, realising that the fact that I happened to be a gay man, I don't know what his story was, and in a way it doesn't matter. Like, it was kind of liberating. Liberating how? Why? I think freeing myself from some of my own trauma in a way. And my own assumptions, like, because there is, you know, inside me, there is this kind of scared 16, 17, 18-year-old kid who was growing up gay in Canberra when, you know, that's around 2000 when gay men were being murdered around this country at, like, a shocking rate, you know, in country in places like Sydney at the Gap and Adelaide and those stories were filtering out to the media and they were being explored with this weird ambiguity like, like, you know, they were almost ghosts. Like there is still that little kid inside of me growing up in a country that may not be as homophobic as it was, but was definitely very, very homophobic when I was a kid. You know, whether it's a nurse or a doctor or, or a friend or a counsellor, when you just try to listen to someone as a person and, yes, respect them and, yes, respect that they've got different experiences. Like people are people. And ultimately, if someone authentically wants to help you, then you'll probably get a sense of that very, very quickly. Like when you've got a patient in front of you, don't just read their clinical notes, listen to them. Yes, as patients, we are much more than a set of clinical notes. Thank you, Toby, for sharing your experiences and your stories with us. I really appreciate your honesty and and candour. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Taking Care been a pleasure having you do you have any questions or comments email us at communications at opera.gov.au 
You can also explore our back catalogue, subscribe and review us by searching for Taking Care in your podcast player. Until next time, take care.